was the sense that Windsor was the worst place to live if you're a woman. I want us to change the narrative to say Windsor is the Essex is the best place if you're a woman to live, to start a business, to grow a business, uh, and to be a leader. Women are 67% less likely to self-promote than men empower women entrepreneurs. Women owned 34% of businesses in Windsor, Essex. Women have to be part of that process. They need to be part of that plan. Women were underrepresented in every single area. We can ensure um, that we can continue to move the dial. Found that they had imposter syndrome. In terms of Rise Windsor, Essex, increasing the number of women entrepreneurs. And that addresses the needs of women entrepreneurs at this time are designed to really celebrate women. Welcome to Made It Happen podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Hafling. Made It Happen is a podcast series highlighting young female founders who took a chance and launched their own business. I've officially teamed up with Rise Windsor Essex to bring you stories of Windsor Essex's very own female entrepreneurs. We're here to celebrate women in the area who have made it happen. This special edition episode is brought to you by WeTech Alliance, and today I'll be speaking with Myra Tofik, Professor of Law and Epicenter Professor of Intellectual Property, Commercialization, and Strategy. We talk about what IP is, everything entrepreneurs need to know about protecting their brand, as well as IP and female entrepreneurs. So how about we start off with having you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and how you ended up in law. Well, I'm right now, I'm currently a, a law professor at the University of Windsor, and my area of expertise is intellectual property law, especially uh, in the area of copyright and trademarks, um, but I cover all kind of the areas, and I hope we'll talk about that later, um, but uh, I went, I'm originally from Montreal, and I uh, had a, you know, I mean, I, this is a long time ago, um, but came, went to law school after an undergraduate degree in, in English literature. So I came at sort of law from a, an arts and humanities perspective rather than a science or engineering and, and that background. And um, I was immediately interested in particularly copyright law, which is sort of the form of intellectual property that really is tied to, you know, creative works, art, literature, music. And um, so, you know, finished my degree and, and, and went into law practice. I didn't practice in the area, uh, but I did my graduate work. So I left private practice, went to graduate school, um, and there I specialized in intellectual property law. And I was very, very fortunate that after graduate school, I found a position here at the University of Windsor in the law school, uh, where at the time the, the faculty of law was looking for an expert in, in intellectual property law. And so I've made my career here for the last 30 years, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, every time I can't, the number just boggles the mind. But anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm interested to sort of, you know, get into more about your career and about intellectual property in general. But I guess to start off, maybe just giving the listeners a background about the different types of intellectual property and also, you know, what they should really know about IP. Well, I mean, one of the things I think it's really critical is the definition of intellectual property. So thanks for asking that question. Um, because very often when people hear IP, they think patents, you know, and patents that protect inventions that usually originate out of, you know, science and engineering fields. 
But actually intellectual property is really like a broad term and it, it encompasses a number of different um, basically legal uh, protection over different kinds of intellectual or aesthetic creation. Um, so copyright, as I mentioned before, is, an, is, a, is a form of intellectual property as well, but instead of protecting science and technical applications in the form of inventions, which is what patents protect, copyright protects the sort of the aesthetic and creative aspects of, of human sort of intellectual endeavor. So, you know, you know, the range is so broad in copyright, but we're talking about art and music. We're talking about poetry and plays, but we're also talking about advertising jingles or computer software or the categories in the uh, under, you know, by law are artistic, literary, dramatic and musical works. So again, movies, photographs, I mean, every sort of aesthetic and creative expression of the human mind is captured by copyright. But then there are also another form of IP, is, uh, which for businesses is particularly important, are trademarks. So anyone who has and, you know, will have a brand and a brand strategy and a marketing strategy around their products or services will also have a trademark, which is basically a name or symbol or sign that you use to identify your products and services uh, in, in the marketplace. And so trademark is a very valuable, can be a very valuable form of intellectual property. Industrial designs, if you're creating a new product and you're adding, you know, elements to that product that have eye appeal that are attractive, you know, the reasons that we might go and pick a particular, you know, you see 10, you know, cell phones on the shelf, you know, in, in the store, but there's one or two that draw your eye, particularly because you like the shape of them or you like the way they, they feel or you like the way the design of them. Those design elements can actually are a form of intellectual property protected by industrial design law. So there, there are sort of many categories of what what is considered IP, um, if there's anything that binds them all or that un unites them all, it's this idea that there they are uh, rights that the law recognizes in, um, in intangible or in kind of in ideas, knowledge, creation, creativity, and inventions, things that come out of um, the human mind. I mean, you know, sort of the things that, that human beings create and invent become the subject of these uh, intellectual property rights. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And so I, like you said there, I think that that relates to any business owner of any category. There is some form of IP there that, you know, they need to be aware of. And so what would you say to maybe those founders or entrepreneurs that are maybe worried about the cost of their IP? And, um, you know, I think contracts and agreements are important in any business. And so what would you sort of say to that group? Well, I mean, it, it is can be daunting. I mean, there's no question, um, you know, in, as you're starting out, especially and you're, you know, cash strapped and you're looking for investors and you're, you know, you're, 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 you need to develop your core business. Do you have to think about, you know, the thousand dollars you might need for the trademark or the twenty thousand dollars you might need for the patent, you know, depending on what what type of IP you're, you, you know, you're, you're thinking about. But I would say that um, one of the things that that you should consider is to think about those intellectual property rights as actually valuable assets of the company and therefore sort of think about how you might manage some of the costs and how you might strategically sort of pursue some forms of intellectual property over others without incurring a lot of costs. So for example, 
um, you know, and they're very different. All the forms of IP have very different, their costs associated with them and very different pathways to securing them. So in for example, with copyright, I mean, there are no costs to actually you know, you, you, you create copyright rights from the moment you create your particular, uh, you know, your website. For example, if you're designing the website, writing the text, you've created a copyright work, there's no cost associated that, with that. The problem is, of course, if someone copies your website and therefore, you know, does something that harms your, um, your business, you have to sue them in order to enforce your copyright and that can become costly. But of course, there are steps that can be taken before that point that will, you know, protect and preserve kind of the scope of, of your um, of your copyright. But you know, at the end of the day, you may have to be at least prepared to to think about a lawsuit. But so at the startup, the upfront cost for copyright is there's nothing. There are no upfront costs. For trademarks in Canada, we recognize registered trademarks and unregistered trademarks. And so we will give, the law will recognize um, your trademark rights in a limited way as soon as you start to use that trademark in Canada. So again, there's no upfront costs. Using would mean putting the name of your, um, the, the sign or the symbol or the logo or the name of your product on the product itself or its packaging. Or if what your business is, is you're performing services rather than selling a product, um, you put your trademark all over the websites and your invoices and everything, every indicator that every, every communication you have with a customer should have your trademark on it. And if you're doing both, you're doing products and services, then make sure you put your trademark physically on the product or its packaging and on your website and invoices and business cards and, and all of that. And you've created at that moment sort of enforceable trademark rights in Canada um, that are, as I said, limited in scope to the area in which you do business. But you, again, there's no upfront cost to that. I mean, it's just the cost of branding and marketing, and making sure you've got sort of the, the trademark on all of your products. Um, it does become more costly when you register. And registering is usually advisable because what registration gives you is Canada-wide rights. So even if you only ever do business in Windsor, or you only do, you know, that you, you can still stop someone in Vancouver who's using the same or similar trademark on the same or similar products or services. Uh, and there, there is a cost. There's a search process that has to be undertaken to make sure you're not, using someone else's trademark, someone who has prior rights. And um, there's also usually, I mean, you, you, can you could apply to register your trademark on your own, usually a lawyer or a trademark agent. It's usually advisable to get that kind of help. And you know, that's, that could take you, you know, between a thousand and two thousand dollars if it's not a contested trademark. So again, I mean, you have to build those costs in, but potential value over the long, long term, um, you know, might make those costs worth bearing, or I'd suggest that they probably are worth bearing um, and sort of making sure that you've done everything you can at the beginning to uh, give yourself as much scope to maneuver and as much sort of intellectual property, you know, fencing that you can give yourself. Um, it's the, it's patents, frankly, that are the most expensive. And that's a different kind of decision. So if, you know, the, there are people, if you're, in, if you're in software, if you're an engineer, if you're, you know, inventing something that is potentially patentable, there you do have to think a lot harder about whether to pursue a patent, what the costs look like, and how you might build them in to your business plan so that you can cover them as they uh, accrue.
Mm -hmm. I think you touched on a lot of great points there and, you know, great things for entrepreneurs to remember and especially about protecting their brand in general. Um, And you, you really, you talked about too there, you know, that that's sort of the legislation in Canada. Um, Do you mind sharing a bit about, you know, what does this look like once you decide to expand internationally, for instance? That's an excellent question because that's when it does become more complicated and more expensive because um, intellectual property rights and that whether it doesn't matter whether in Canada or in the United States or in uh, Europe, they're territorial. I mean, they only apply in the country in which you've registered your rights or in which you're sort of you're based. And so registering a trademark in Canada is not going to give you registered trademark rights in the United States. You'd have to go through a similar process and register there. The same for a patent. A patent that you register in Canada will not give you patent rights in the United States or in in England or China. And so you actually have to think about and build into your plan. Uh, and, And which is why, frankly, it's very important at the very beginning uh, as an early as an early stage uh, company to start to think about mapping out and planning all of those strategies, making decisions about what markets you want to enter into, and then what you should be looking at in terms of intellectual property protection that will give you scope to maneuver in those jurisdictions um, that, that the, 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 you know, in the, in the global marketplace effectively, but in the jurisdictions that you want to carry on business in. Um, and Canada is a small market. And so very often, um, if you're looking at a good IP portfolio, you're thinking not only about, um, or maybe sometimes not even thinking about Canada, but most, you know, a lot of, a lot of Canadian uh, inventors, for example, will patent in the United States either exclusively or first, you know, that Canada isn't the primary uh, um, jurisdiction for the patent, even if they're Canadian-based businesses. Um, So it's a really good question. And so the whole point, I think, of of trying to empower, especially women entrepreneurs, because I'd like to touch on that a little bit, because there's, uh, there are some issues, particularly in IP uh, and with, uh, with, with women founders and women entrepreneurs in terms of underrepresentation. But it really is these, these things may seem sort of complex and scary and intimidating. And, and, and to some extent, they are. So I'm not, you know, minimizing it. But there's help. I mean, there are ways of getting the the answers you need, sort of figuring out how to move forward, thinking about how to develop your intellectual property kind of strategy or portfolio in line with your business strategy so that you give yourself. So so in a way, it's what you start to do now, like at the very beginning, even though you don't think, you know what, I'm not going to, I mean, I don't, why am I investing in this? I don't really need this right now. Or why am I going to bother, let's say with a patent, let's take that example, because it's the most expensive. I, you know, I'm, I'm not really, you know, I, I don't really care about that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to need it. Is that you're keeping your doors open for the future so that somewhere down the line as your business grows as you become more successful as you've created for example a lot of of uh, customer goodwill around your trademark you might be able to uh, it, you know um, develop a new revenue stream by licensing your trademark to uh, you know a, a manufacturer or sort of another business that's doing something that's complementary to yours so it takes, you're not changing your core business, but you're going to get licensing revenue from someone who uses your trademark in a, in a you know, sort of an adjacent or sort of a complementary uh, business. 
And these are ways, and if you, you, you're able to leverage that trademark because you did all of the things you needed to do at the outset. So in a way, it's sort of anticipatory, um, which is why it sort of doesn't, you know, it's hard to, 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 you know, as I say, when you're, you're just starting out, you've got so many things on your plate that you need to deal with to have to think as well about, oh my gosh, they're, they're you know, looking for $2,000 to register a trademark. Um, I, I'll deal with it. You know, I'll deal with it some other time. Um, maybe it is worth thinking a little bit more clearly about it at the outset and understanding what your plan is because the stronger your trademark is, the more value you have to your company. And in fact, one of the reasons that intellectual property has become such a big sort of um, of such interest, I think, generally more of in in sort of business um, planning, is because it's becoming increasingly sort of um, uh, in terms of the value of companies, uh, the the value based on the intellectual property is often much greater than in the sort of the inventory or even the human, you know, the, the human capital. Um, but the value of the intellectual assets can be really quite high. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think those are some, you know, great things for entrepreneurs to think about and really about, you know, at like down the road for their business and, yeah. you know, how this is going to affect them in the future. So I think those are some great things to keep in mind. And, you know, you also talked about the branding of um, businesses with mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. And one of these key features that they focus on too is their logo design. Yeah. And so if they were to say work with a designer, um, is there anything, you know, that they should really be keeping in mind in terms of ownership or any other sort of aspects of that? Yeah, thanks for asking that because that is really an important consideration. So if you're going and contracting for services, so you're asking someone to design your logo, um, make sure that the contract uh, that you're engaging them under makes it clear that the you help you hold all of the intellectual property rights. So not just the, the design as a trademark, but if it's a logo, so there's a sort of a, you know, it's a, an image of some kind, it could also be um, protected by copyright. So you want to make sure that the designer you're working with also transfers their copyright in the design to you so that you have full ownership of all of the intellectual property rights around sort of that design. So what that means then is obviously you can control how how that design is used. Um, without having to, I mean, you know, obviously hear from someone else, um, the, the designer, the original copyright holder, for example, that, that you're somehow using or reproducing the design in a way that they don't like. Um, so to have, you know, so, it, I mean, again, these are difficult agreements often, you know, depending on presumably sort of if they're providing you the, the, the company with the agreement, read the fine print, you know, make sure that you understand every clause. And if you don't, if, you know, and there's no, often it's really in technical legalistic terms, so it's not easily understandable. Find some help. See if there aren't, uh, you know, organizations that can help you um, at least sort of, you know, translate, frankly, uh, some of the very cumbersome legal terms into, into ways in which, you know, that make it clear to you that you're actually getting the ownership of the intellectual property. And if the clauses aren't the way you want them to be, negotiate them. You know, go. Nothing is fixed in stone. I mean, it may be that the designer says, "Too bad." You know, I'm. You know, I'm. I don't accept those terms. I'm walking away. You have to be prepared for that. And how far would you go towards? But 
you know, in every circumstance, it's, it's advisable for you to, to as, a, as a company founder, to make sure that you own the intellectual property. Uh, and you own it absolutely, that it's, it's not, you know, encumbered or, or, or conditional in any way. Um, because that's what gives you the freedom to maneuver um, is by owning the intellectual property. So if you haven't created it yourself and you're hiring someone to create it for you and they're not an employee and I mean, there are all kinds of different rules, but if they're not an employee, uh, make sure that the agreement, that in the agreement, the intellectual property rights that come out of that agreement, what they're doing for you is uh, vests or is owned by you, that that, that agreement makes it clear. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think that's really important to remember. And you gave a lot of great advice there too, to make sure you understand it before you really go into anything. Mm-hmm. And you talked about earlier, you know, about especially female entrepreneurs and IP. And so can you just tell us a little bit, you know, about what made you interested in that specifically? And also you had mentioned too, how they're so underrepresented in this area. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Well, I, I will probably, I'm re, part of the reason I'm interested in it is because um, it was a barrier for me uh, in terms of law practice. So um, when, when I graduated from law school and wanted to practice in the area and, of intellectual property law, and you know, we're talking many years ago, it, but the th- sad thing is it's still the same. That's what's really sad. But it was very difficult for women to actually move into the practice. Now, the legal profession generally it is not, you know, I mean, it's, it's improved greatly over the, over the last, you know, 30 years, but basically it remains very much sort of a male preserve. And so an intellectual property was this kind of elite sort of practice and it didn't, they didn't, uh, women were not generally well represented. So, so for me, there was a person that was sort of a barrier face, not as a, as a, as a, a business person or entrepreneur, but as a, as a lawyer. And then when I came, when I, you know, my years of teaching, I've seen similar struggles for my female um, uh, law students, you know, graduating. So the the world hasn't changed all that much. But more importantly, in terms of this women and entrepreneurship and IP law, um, when I started working with um, the epicenter, the 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 campus-led accelerator at the University of Windsor, and I started to work with colleagues at the business school who were uh, working in the area of entrepreneurship. And so I became exposed to more of the entrepreneurial kind of educational programming. And I started to run programs on um, IP for entrepreneurs through the entrepreneurship ecosystem. I saw sort of that whatever the programs were. So if we were running a program, let's say on patent law for engineers, um, that the the pro that the um, that the women sort of in in the groups tended not to be able to access the same resources, the same networks. Um, they tended not to be as visible to, and, and therefore sort of often left behind in, in a way that, that uh, I thought really bothered me. I mean, I thought it was, again, part of it was my own experience of being excluded, but I started to see the same patterns in terms of the early stage women entrepreneurs that I was working with um, through the uh, Windsor-Essex kind of entrepreneurship ecosystem. More recently, um, governments have started to pay attention because, uh, and, and, and so studies have been done in the United States and less so in Canada, but they, they're starting, you know, it's starting to pick up about the fact that 
in terms of registered intellectual property, so patents and trademarks and industrial designs, women are significantly underrepresented so that they're not actually obtaining intellectual property registered IP rights at the same rate sort of as men, for example, as their male counterparts. Now in science, technology, engineering, and math in the STEM disciplines, part of it is because, you know, it's it's systemic, right? I mean, the same, you know, the, the, there's um, a dearth of women in STEM, so they're not going to invent at the same pace, et cetera. But the, the data shows as well that even if you account for that, that women are still not, there, there are structural and, um, well, systemic barriers to enabling them to access the patent system uh, successfully, let's say, as men. And it, you know, and, and some of them are sort of the same factors that affect women entrepreneurs as opposed to their male counterparts, difficulties with sort of, or, you know, less, uh, the networks aren't as solid, um, more difficulty getting uh, investment, so funding, so even funding to file a patent, but funding general, generally um, not, not being, you know, I, I've been doing a little study, sort of pilot research study, where we've been interviewing women who have secured intellectual property to find out what their experience has been. And very often, even though they were successful, their first experiences were really a feeling talked down to by their lawyers, um, by the lawyers they went to. They'd go in with a uh, you know, um, uh, they're the founder, they go in with a male employee and the lawyer's talking to the man and not to them. And, you know, there's a sort of a pattern of, you know, this sort of assumptions that about sort of gender roles that, that made it more difficult for them to be heard. Also, women go into businesses that might be different from, you know, the sort of the, the, the intellectual property, the, the mainstream idea about what, what intellectual property driven businesses look like. And so they're, you know, if they're not sort of building a, a machine or sort of developing some kind of new technology and therefore aren't clearly in the patent space, then they're, you know, left entirely out of the intellect, you know, even discussions around IP. And so there's sort of, so it's, it's more, it's structural and systemic and it, 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 it kind of parallels the same uh, findings around some of the barriers to women in entrepreneurship generally, and obviously also to women in STEM disciplines, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and so I'm really very interested personally in trying to figure out pathways to help more women succeed at generating and protecting intellectual property, but in a way that is also consistent with their values and, and the way they want their businesses to, to, um, to, to grow. Mm -hmm. Like you said, that you're really interested in seeing, you know, how is this going to change in the future? And I think especially right now that we are, we're getting the research and we're getting those survey results is definitely a great first step. Um, what do you see as sort of being the next step? Or is there any, anything going on right now that's really helping, you know, make that transition? Well, I think first of some things you start, you know, for example, the, um, the Business Development Bank of Canada, which is a Crown Corporation, they they have specific funds. You know, they'll lend money. You know, under women in tech, so they'll have specific funds specifically designed for women, women entrepreneurs in particular sectors or industries where there is a you know underrepresentation. Um, they also have an intellectual property fund, so they're they're looking for companies that are trying to develop and 
for example, patent an invention and they're, they're, they will lend the money towards kind of developing strong IP portfolios. So there are some measures that are happening, some of them that to target women specifically, but I, not sort of to the extent that I think, you know, we need to start to sort of to, to, to really see uh, and, and make a difference. And I think, you know, tackling issues like sort of, you know, putting women entrepreneurs who have good IP ideas that could be developed into intellectual property in front of the right experts and experts who, who, who understand sort of the particular contexts within which women um, operate as entrepreneurs. So the struggles and the, 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 the all of the factors that, that, that are uh, behind the scenes. So sort of developing kind of the, the relationships or helping to, foster those relationships, um, you know, the networks that need to be built for this specifically. Educating, you know, in angel investors and investors about sort of the, the, the ways in which women create and invent and, and develop their businesses that may not be in, in a kind of, um, you know, the sort of the expected route and, you know, to be able to see past, I guess, sort of what, what the four corners of their expectations to really understand sort of what is driving the female founder and also sort of where, you know, the, to have confidence, I guess, in, in her business acumen. Because again, another, another factor is the, the lack of, you know, the sort of mistrust about the fact that women may not be as capable of doing X, Y, and Z. Um, but sort of building, finding the right experts and building the right networks, um, building the right sort of mentoring, mentoring on IP. You know, that doesn't, I mean, it doesn't happen generally, but um, what, it, you know, it, it needs, there needs to be specific sort of attention paid to the kinds of IP that women generate, um, the kinds of businesses that sort of, and the kinds of, of again, values um, that might drive women uh, in, and, and responding to that in an IP framework that provides them with all the things I described, sort of a way forward so that they're anticipating down the road how they may be able to, to leverage or deploy their intellectual property for um, their business in, in ways that matter to them and to their, you know, for their business growth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think, I think, yeah, once again, you touched on a lot of great points there. And, you know, you, you did talk about sort of, you know, those female entrepreneurs that, you know, have really, have really been in the sort of IP sector. And is there sort of one in particular that, you know, you'd like to share as sort of like a highlight or maybe a, a role model or something cool that's really come from a female entrepreneur in that area? Well, I mean, you know, there, the thing is, there are a lot of uh, women who have done amazing things and who have protected their intellectual property. And it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, patents and copyright, it, I mean, they're hundreds of years old as concepts. The thing about it is we don't hear about them a lot, right? Which, again, goes to my point about systemic issues um, that who do we think about, you know, in terms of sort of the, 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 the great, you know, inventors, it's usually, um, you know, it might be, you know, Steve Jobs or, you know, that it's going to be sort of um, generally speaking, you know, very, very famous or significant people who tend to be men. Um, but, but, and there are, so this, but there are a lot of great sort of women inventors and women in sexual property rights holders. So I'd like to actually highlight a Canadian, an Indigenous Canadian inventor, and who invented um, a, a, a very, very useful commercial product in 1910. It's not a new phenomenon. Um, 
IP has become more prominent over time, but we've had great women inventors in Canada for a long time. And so Olivia Poole was uh, an Indigenous Canadian inventor who invented the Jolly Jumper. I don't know if you're familiar with this sort of baby jumper uh, because I think it's it's been discontinued. But she uh, she invented it in 1910. And usually these things happen because you know you're you know you 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 find um, a pro problem you need to solve in your own life and you create something that actually solves that problem. Um, and so she eventually patented it in 1957. She started a company around it, um, which she sold in the 1960s. So to me, she's a, a hero and a success story because you can only imagine, or I can only imagine, the struggles she must have gone through just to get through, you know, sort of uh, as an indigenous woman in Canada to, you know, um, establish herself as an inventor who can get a patent and then who you know who can start a business uh, successful business around that so um, I think that's part of what needs to happen is we need to really see sort of all of the struggles that must have gone you know before sort of the the, the woman um, who you know the, the, the patent holder or the trademark holder or the industrial design right holder all of the systemic struggles that they would have had had to undergo in order to get to that particular place um, and that that goes for sort of you know any um, underrepresented group there's a lot of research around the fact that the system is, is you know um, makes it more difficult for racialized groups among others and women to access mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a great example and you know like you said i think it is important to continue sharing those stories of the struggles they come but also celebrating the women that really have yeah. like you said a lot of them aren't people don't know because they're not shown they're not highlighted so i think that's really important you know for everyone to sort of keep in mind and you know especially again with entrepreneurs in general a lot of them sort of are their own brand mm -hmm. um, you know they're the face behind the brand a lot of the people see that so you talked about this a bit but is there anything for that specifically that people can really do to protect that brand themselves well, I mean, it, it is it's sort of thinking about practices and procedures, even internally within the business to maintain the integrity of the identity in the brand. So outside of the trademark, which is one small piece of the larger kind of, you know, company brand and the branding exercise, um, you know, thinking about sort of, you know, um, instilling in, in the in customers and in the public sort of a rec you know sort of recognition sort of that's kept constant and continuous along sort of the same the same lines but then making sure that in the way the company's practices and procedures are drafted that employees and others know how to use the trademark as an example sort of in ways that are consistent with the, the brand identity but also ways in that don't undermine the, the trademark rights themselves so that there's a there's sort of um uh, so that the more you consumers identify with you and your brand the more valuable your company becomes because of that recognition and so making sure that the practices and procedures within the company are, are continuously reinforced that they're maintaining the integrity of the brand but and the intellectual property that surrounds it um, and that you've got sort of everything in place uh, as you move along and that it's reviewed and assessed as the business grows.
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think those are some great points and a lot of great things for entrepreneurs to really keep in mind there. And, you know, you've talked sort of um, a lot about sort of those different resources that are out there that people can really utilize. Are there any that you'd like to share that, you know, maybe the audience um, might be able to use if they're looking more into this? Well, the Canadian Intellectual Property Office is really the, the, the government office that looks after trademark registrations and patent registrations and they'll, industrial design registrations and they'll tell you about copyright. And so as a sort of first go-to place, because that is the official government agency for Canadian intellectual property, the Canadian Intellectual Property Office, and each country, so the United States is an example, they have their own the, you know, body or agency that does the same thing in the U.S. It's the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and and so there, there's a lot of material that will help you get started in in that respect. I mean, I can give you a plug for a, a free online course I developed, um, but, uh, but and a book. But I mean, so you could look me up and and find my own material if you're interested, which is really at a, a foundational level designed for startups and entrepreneurs um, to help sort of you know guide. Uh, through some of the, um, you know, the, the early stage intellectual property issues. Um, but the, Canadian, the, the intellectual property offices like SIPO um, are, are well resourced in terms of being able to provide some guidance right at the very beginning. And then through the entrepreneurship and incubation ecosystem in the province or in the country, where whatever your, you know, regional innovation center, like sort of you know, in Windsor WeTech or on campus, your campus-based accelerator incubator, like in Windsor, it would be Epicenter, um, you know, sort of go, go and see if you can find from them. They can, they're not going to have the resources themselves, but they'll be able to, to direct you towards or help you find answers. Talk to your peers, you know, and, and, and about it. I don't think it's subjects, it's a subject matter that may, may not be at the forefront of a lot of kind of networking events, but zero in on, on individuals who have already taken that path, have already maybe a little bit farther ahead in, in their intellectual property um, journey and developing their IP portfolios and, and hear from them about what why they did what they did and sort of what matters to them and what the costs were and to the extent that they're prepared to sort of to help you along. I think that's a great resource is, is are your peers, those who have come a little bit farther ahead, who have gone through it because, you know, otherwise, you know, you're really going to be talking to a lot of lawyers like me, but, you know, who may not necessarily really kind of, you know, really understand what the, what your individual journey is like and sort of where the constraints or the, um, your philosophy sort of lies. So I think, you know, those would be things I would recommend. So, but the Canadian Intellectual Property Office as the government agency is probably the first best place to go. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing all those resources. I think it's a lot of, you know, great things that the audience can really go and look into. And would you just like to share, you had mentioned too, that you have your course and book. Do you have, would you like to share where they can go to find that and any information on yourself? Well, sure. The course, which is free, it's seven modules and it's available through the Center for International Governance Innovation, CG website. So it's called the CG Massive Open Online Course, Foundations of IP um, uh, and IP Strategy. Um, so if you Google sort of, or I shouldn't be saying that because I'm actually committing a no-no on trademarks. If you search the internet for um, for CG MOOC or my last name, or you know, or 
you'll 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 get in there you'll get to the link you can register for it um, and go through the modules the book is is co-authored both the MOOC and the book are co-authored so my, my co-author is Karima Bawa uh, and uh, the book is uh, the intellectual property guide uh, and it's available through brush education it's on Amazon and, and other kind of um, online uh, retailers. Um, there's an ebook version and uh, a hard copy version. It's priced well. We were intent on pricing it well so that it's reasonable and affordable. And it was intended as a desk, sort of something you just have as a guidebook or a reference book on your desk, basically, when you kind of you need to look up sort of the difference between copyright, a co you know, trademark and a patent or, you know, these kinds of things. It provides some information about, like you were talking about contract, Sarah, uh, license Licensing, um, what kinds of strategies might be used uh, by companies to sort of leverage their intellectual property, how to build an IP portfolio, that kind of thing. Um, so those are the two resources that uh, I, I worked on there, though, no, that, that uh, Karima and I sort of produced really with, with a view to helping support early stage um, startups and entrepreneurs. Um, and so uh, hopefully, I've, you know, there's useful material there. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing all those tools and resources and everyone can go and check those out. Did you have any just final thoughts before we wrapped up here today? Well, just for all of the, your, your, your audience is just sort of the, if there's sort of barriers or things that you're intimidated by at the outset, don't be, uh, you know, if, and, and don't, don't, you know, keep on persevering. I mean, intellectual property will actually sort of be an, should be an integral part of your business plan and it should sort of in a way affirm everything you're doing about growing your business and so don't let anyone tell you otherwise and don't let the costs you know intimidate you don't let lawyers intimidate you or talk down to you um, you know sort of look for the right people to help you the right people who are responsive and who will support you but so don't I guess my message don't disregard the intellectual property because it seems overwhelmingly complex and, and expensive and technical at the outset, find the right people to help you. And increasingly, I think you will be, you will find within the ecosystem, you'll find increasingly programs, especially women entrepreneurship programs, like, you know, we rise like venture women at Epicenter, um, who will find the right kinds of people to, um, that you can connect with so that you could think through um, how you might use IP to strategic advantage in your business. Thanks for listening to Made It Happen Podcast, the podcast highlighting female entrepreneurs. Make sure you subscribe to the channel, leave a review, and I'll see you next week.